There's like a three to four X increase in the protein uptake when you take EAAs with a meal. Exercise is the biggest inducer of autophagy, much more than fasting. If you were starving and sitting on the couch or not moving, your body's gonna say, this person's starving and they're not utilizing their body. Let's go ahead and break down their muscle tissue. So I wanna help people understand, hey, you've got all these different kinds of fasting. No one is particularly better than the other. The positive metabolic impact on rapid weight loss is actually quite good. You have to just go with what works. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, this may be one of the most eagerly anticipated episodes yet on this show. Ever since I announced that I was interviewing Thomas DeLauer, I have been getting so many questions about when is the episode airing? Well, exciting day. It is airing now, and I think you guys are going to love it. Thomas was so incredible, so kind, and he is so knowledgeable, and we dived into so many topics that I have been thinking a lot about, things like do women actually burn fat? better than men? Should you crash diet? Does eating fat teach you to burn fat? He actually knew the answer to that, which was super, super cool. We talk about fasting, the role of protein, the blue zones, hormones, autophagy, being skinny fat, especially near the end, we touch on the role of being a parent and how to handle your kids and the crazy world of diets. So many things. I cannot wait to hear what you guys think. The show notes will have a full transcript as well as links to everything that we talked about. So definitely check that out. That will be at melanieavalon.com slash Thomas DeLauer. That's T-H-O-M-A-S-D-E-L-A-U-E-R. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post, and again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, 
they are not one ingredient, there is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which may 
mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally, completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. Without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Thomas DeLauer. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is with a legend in this whole sphere, the the intermittent fasting world, the keto world, the diet world. I mean, everybody, I think, knows this guest, but I am here with Thomas DeLauer. And so the backstory on today's conversation especially as the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, we get questions, Thomas, by the way, we get questions all the time about people who see videos or some of your work and they have questions about specific things that you've said. So this is a really exciting moment to actually be connecting with you now. So I've been following your work for, I mean, years at this point. And our mutual friend, Bill Tanser at Cygnos, actually offered to connect us, which was really, really incredible. And I was so excited. So I jumped at that opportunity. After that, that's when I read your book, which it's called Intermittent Fasting Made Easy, Next Level Hacks to Supercharge Fat Loss, Boost Energy, and Build Muscle. And I will say, I learned so much in that book. It is a deep, deep dive into intermittent fasting. And it touched on a lot of things I personally wasn't aware of. And I just want to say before starting, what I really appreciate about your content in general is you've done something that I think is a little bit difficult to do in the whole health and wellness sphere, which is A, create a platform that reaches a very broad audience and is intriguing and people want to listen and it's approachable. But then also you dive really deep into the science. And so I really applaud you for blending together those two worlds. And I am really excited for this conversation. And thank you so much for being here. 
Oh, well, thanks for having me. This is going to be cool. I love going deep. To start things off, like I said, we were connected through Bill Tancer. Well, I want to hear about your personal story, but before that, I'm just curious, do you wear CGMs regularly? I do. I would say I usually do like six weeks on, six weeks off. I, I try to try to not get so lost in the data that I, I drive myself nuts because I will do that. I wear, <laughs> I have an eight sleep that I sleep on. I wear a whoop. I wear an aura ring. I wear a CGM. I'm like a bionic, you know? So it's sometimes I will drive myself nuts if I just like look at data all day long and eventually end up with analysis paralysis. So yeah, I wear one for about six weeks at a time. Then I take it off for four or six weeks, kind of let my body reset because I like looking at contrasting data, like what changes in my life. And then kind of that way it's a surprise when I throw it back on and different things, different stimulus. We are so similar. So I've got the aura ring. I've got, I actually, I have the eight sleep. It's on my bed, but I haven't used it yet because I'm waiting for them to have an airplane mode for the Wi-Fi. So, so I've just been using my Uller, but no, I'm the same way. And with the CGM, I'm curious when you first put one on for the first time, were you shocked by anything that you saw? To be honest, not really. I've always gotten super regular blood work anyway. I went through a phase where it's like, you know, every two weeks or so I was getting different panels done just because that's kind of how my channel is. I'm always my own N of one. So if I'm going to talk about something, I'm going to experiment or explore it myself. So I wasn't that shocked to see like my fasting glucose being a little bit higher than I would have expected or, or what normal people would have expected. Like they say, okay, like I'm intermittent fasting. Why is my fasting glucose in the, in the nineties or whatever? Shouldn't it be in the eighties? Cause I'm so healthy. And so I already had an understanding of like peripheral insulin resistance and kind of how that was working. I'd say the biggest shock to me was something that I had seen talked about, but didn't really didn't really register until I was wearing a CGM and that was just the impact of sleep and how different foods just respond completely different in my body if I'm sleep deprived or if I'm well rested. That was, it actually gave me some sleep anxiety because I was like, now I know like if I don't sleep good, how like metabolically damaging it can be and I can see it with my own eyes. And then I finally got over that anxiety and now I'm sleeping again, but <laughs> that was a big shock for me. I'm like a little bit sleep neurotic. I am all about the sleep and I think it is so, so important. And maybe we can actually circle back to that. But before that, for listeners who are not familiar with your work, although like I said, many of them probably are, could you tell us a little bit about your personal story? And I mean, did you anticipate becoming the YouTube sensation that you are? I mean, you have millions of followers and viewers. No, no, definitely not. In fact, it's it's funny. I mean, it's it's sort of a the overnight success 10 years in the making sort of cliche, but that was definitely not like, I'm such a, an introverted, pretty shy person that, you know, if I had it my way, I was always just kind of a, a lone wolf in the gym, lone wolf in the office. Like I, I just, you know, I, I've been with my wife since high school. So I, I probably don't even know how to talk to girls and like, I just have no, you know, so it's like, I just, I'm such a dork. And it, so the fact that it's still like, shocking to me that people even want to listen to what I have to say because it's like, that's just how I was brought up. I was like such a nerd growing up. I was such a kind of a loser of a kid. I, I don't want to call myself a literal loser because I, I was quite good at things, but it just in the eyes of my peers, I was just, I marched to the beat of a different drum. So I always was kind of a little bit outcasted. And so it's still just unbelievable to me, you know, but I guess that's what it takes sometimes. It's like that contrast of standing out and being different, but no, I mean, I, I started my channel just because I realized somewhat accidentally that I was good at articulating complex subject matter. I, uh, you know, for years working in the healthcare industry and as a physician recruiter and then having 
part in an ancillary lab services company, my job was really, really was selling to physicians. I mean, that's basically what I was doing. I was selling lab services. And so I was in biotech and biomed sales. So even though I don't have a formal education in biochem, like I was a psychology major, I knew how to talk to physicians in a way that would help them understand. And physicians aren't the easiest people to talk to. You know, they're usually fairly myopic in their ways of thinking. So in order to be able to get them to open their brains a little bit, you have to be able to explain it in a way that makes fiduciary sense, financial sense for them, but also like what's in it for the doctor, what's in it for them. And I realized like, wow, okay, this is actually really unique because I can spin this in a way that gets people excited about their health and people get excited about and passionate about their health because that's what's missing. It's like anyone can go read a script or read from a teleprompter or something, but if they're not truly living it and being passionate about it and not instilling passion in their, with their viewership, it's never going to go anywhere. And I think that's what my, my gift is, is the ability to articulate that subject matter. So after I went through my transformation, which most people that know me know that I was very overweight for a short period of time in my uh, early 20s. And you know my life got turned around really quick, fortunately, because I pulled my head out of my you-know-what. And when I did discover intermittent fasting and keto and how that worked for me so well, you know, I had launched an initial ebook and that was on Facebook. I think it was like, it was back in the wild west of Facebook where, you know, you could actually post something and people would see it. And I, and I just remember like, oh my gosh, like here I am just like, I, I, I took a sabbatical. I exited the company that I was in and I took a vow to take a couple of years off because I was so stressed and I was just like, it was going to, I was going to wind up divorced. I was just so stressed out all the time. So I'm like, I'm, I, I am going to take a couple of years off. I had enough, a little bit of a, you know, financial exit to say, okay, this, this buys me a little bit of time before I figure out what I want to do next. So I wrote this ebook and it was like that, it's called the adaptive body boost. It was kind of cheesy, but it was very straightforward and it just flew. It was selling like crazy. And I realized that, wow, like this is converting and it's actually generating sales because people are resonating with my story. Like for once in my life, people want to hear my story. So I just started putting some of the clips on YouTube and it was like, boom, I'm like, okay, well, there's something here. And honestly, as they say, it's the rest is history. It just kind of took off. And then I'm like, well, I don't want to be slinging eBooks. That's not my goal. My goal is like, I really like production. I like making videos. So I invested really early on in like a robust video team and equipment. And I took almost all of my savings from my exit from my company and put it into hiring staff and getting video production and being like, hey, told my wife, I was like, we're either going to like make this work or we're going to die trying and I'm going to you know, go back to commission only work because <laughs> it's fine. And uh, here we are. Wow. That is so incredible and so inspiring. And I'm a fellow introvert, by the way, so I completely identify there. It's interesting when I was asking my audience for questions for you and I anticipated getting a lot of, you know, fasting and health related questions, which I did, but I also got a lot of questions about your wife <laughs> and your kids. Like I, everybody wants to know, they all want to know why she's not posting as much anymore. Yeah, she's, yeah, she's definitely not. And she, she and I talk about that. She's just, you know, to be totally frank, she got super burnt out with the fact that <laughs> every time she would post something, it would get like 500 views. It was just, she's like, it's not, she, it's not worth me taking the time away from the kid. This is her talking, you know, not worth me taking the time away from my kids and doing this when like, it doesn't go anywhere. It's not it, like really the algorithm just tanked. And I think she got really, really disheartened with like everything just became so politicized over the last couple of years and so dark. And she's just like, I just don't want to do it. I mean, so, you know, she'll, 
And, and the funny thing is, is like, you know, she's in the best shape now that she's probably ever been in. And I always tell her, I was like, you should be like showing how awesome you look and what you do. And like, and she, she will occasionally, like she'll post some stories and stuff like that. But also just how Instagram kind of turned over to reels being the thing. That's just like never been her thing. My wife has always been a tremendous writer. And so if you remember her posts from a long time ago, or shouldn't say a long time ago, but two, three years ago, it was always like a picture and then like a very long, really well-worded post that really would hit people. And that was her thing. And then the reels came along and it was like, uh, I don't really want to do this. I like to write. That's, that's the real reason why there's nothing, nothing crazy. Whereas like for me, Instagram was, it was the opposite. I never posted on Instagram and now that reels are around. It actually works quite well for me because video is my main medium. So well, that totally makes sense. Well, you can tell her that I know she was disheartened by it, but apparently the people love her because that was like all the all the questions I got. Where's his wife? <laughs> no, I will make sure I say something to her because if I know my wife been together for 18 years, she's her love language is definitely words of affirmation. Hearing that is going to help her a lot. I'm just laughing because I'm the same way. Like I do the same thing with posts. Like I like to do a picture and I like to do like lots of words. Like I'm not about the reels and the videos. So I, I understand why she got burnt out with all of that. So a general question, just because, so you've been doing this for so long and the fasting world and the keto world, there are so many different perspectives and thoughts and ways to do all of this. So what has been your experience in like finding, so like with fasting, for example, is there like one type of fasting you think works for most people or is there a lot of flexibility there? Do people have to find what works for them? Like just what do you do being inundated with so much, so many different opinions and thoughts about all of it and, you know, more and more research? Yeah, no, there's, it's, it's all, and sometimes it sounds so conflicting, you know, it's like you can be hot on one idea and then something else comes out and you're like, okay, well, maybe we're hot on this idea, but the bottom line is kind of like I always say, should always just be a tool in your toolbox. With fasting, no matter what, whatever is getting you the result is what's going to work. That's that's it, period. It's kind of like with ketosis. It's like, don't, don't chase ketones, chase results. And the reason I say that is, you know, 16-8, traditional intermittent fasting works so well for people, and then eventually it doesn't. And that doesn't mean that 16-8 doesn't work, and that doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. It just means you need to do something different. The body adjusts, the, you know, the body finds a nice homeostasis. There's nothing wrong with doing a 16-8 for the rest of your life. If that's just your lifestyle, like it's not going to hurt you. As a matter of fact, it's probably only going to help you. But if you're still trying to lose weight and it's not working for you anymore, might be time to shift it up. And I think we're heading to a place probably in the near future where specific genes are going to be playing a role too. You know, like Melanie, you might have a different genome than I do. And that's going to lead to maybe you get more benefit out of a specific kind of fasting, fasting through different periods than I do. And I think that's where it's headed because when you look at all the data, it's like, okay, here's some success with ETRF. Here's some success with 16-8. Here's some success with alternate day fasting. And you know, me, by my very nature, I'll do videos on all of them, A, because I need to create the content, but also B, I get excited about it. Every time I read a new paper, I'm like, ah, oh, I got to make a video on this, which can be paralyzing because you're like, yeah, wait, I thought, I thought alternate day fasting had all these great results. Now, early time restricted feeding has all these great results. Well, they both have great results. And it doesn't mean you have to do both. It means, hey, now you have more to choose from. But I think we're going to get to a point where, wait a minute, maybe this one works well for me right now. Maybe this other one's going to work for me tomorrow. And at first it leads with frustration. But once you kind of adjust and you realize, wow, this isn't a problem, 
this is actually abundance. This is great. I have a lot of things to choose from. It's sort of my direction over the next year or two is to kind of help people understand when they should be doing each specific kind of fast, not in very nuanced situations, but in general themes of their lifestyle. I'm going through a stressful period of time right now. The next few months are going to be stressful. You know, I need to focus on this. Or maybe I'm going through a divorce, or maybe I'm going through this relationship issue, and I need to focus on this. So I want to help people understand that, hey, you've got all these different kinds of fasting. No one is particularly better than the other. Maybe you know, on paper we could poke holes, but realistically, they're all great. But let's get really good and let's give you something to pull out of your tool bag when you're feeling amazing and feeling great. And let's give you something to pull out of your toolbox when you're feeling not so great. And I think that's where we're headed. And that's what I'm really trying to, that's how I handle all the different information that comes in. Like you said, I just think it's so individual. And then I think it's so individual, even with whether or not you shift it up. And you mentioned this with like people doing 16, eight for years. Like some people I think do need to switch it up and like, that's what is going to suit their body. And then others do really well. Like for me, I've been doing the same thing for like a decade. And <laughs> every time I do something different, it just doesn't really pan out well for me. So yeah, I, I just think it's so individual. I thought of so many questions from that. Just out of curiosity, what's the most recent like interesting or shocking study you've read about fasting or just anything really interesting that you've read recently? Well, shocking is not necessarily a good one, but shocking was that recent, uh, you probably saw, you probably saw my video on it, was that study that just came out that they tried saying that like intermittent fasting doesn't work. Did you see that one? There's been a few of those recently. The, yeah, this one like just came out, like CNN and Bloomberg reposted it. It was from Johns, uh, out of Johns Hopkins. I won't spend a lot of detail on that because I don't want to dwell on a negative, but it was hilarious because they said that they basically had people log their food via an app with three different options. Like, hey, I ate 500 calories at this meal, 1,000 calories at this meal, or 1,500 calories at this meal, assuming that most people, A, know how to count calories, but B, assuming that they're going to actually appropriately like account for how much food they ate. The real kicker was the fasting length was 12 and a half hours. So they found that people that were fasting for 12 and a half hours ended up eating more, therefore fasting doesn't work. And they like created this massive campaign around it. CNN pushed it out. Bloomberg pushed it out. Like I had multiple people send it to me and be like, I can't believe you've been promoting this. And now it just came out of Johns Hopkins. I'm just like, oh guys, come on. Like, but it was, so that was the most shocking, <laughs> but in terms of groundbreaking, you know, cool stuff, I think it continues to be the circadian gene ETRF stuff with sleep. I think that's where it's getting really, really interesting. There was one study like a year and a half ago. It was a rodent model study, but it's still the most interesting to me. You know, and you have a nuanced audience, so they understand like a rodent model, you don't throw it out the window. Like if you're always trying to, if you're trying to live in the past all the time, then sure, epidemiological data is great, you know, but that's going to be 30 years lagging. So like I look at a rodent model study and I say, Hey, that's awesome. I hope that can be replicated in humans and I'm going to get excited about it. And I'm going to get people excited about it because that's the idea behind biohacking too, is that you're looking at what's coming, not what's already been proven or should I say demonstrated because you can really never say proven. But the rodent model thing was this whole, I always talk about PPAR alpha, you know, the nuclear receptor protein. That's where I was going. I'm so excited. We're talking about this. This was like the, basically they found in mice that when PPAR was activated in the brain, it promoted wakefulness. So essentially rats, I can't remember if it's rats or mice, but rats or mice that were basically restricted sleep had just as much wakefulness if PPAR alpha was activated 
as mice that did not have PPR alpha activated that were getting like 10 hours of sleep. So essentially, the reason that I looked into this so much was because like, like, when I go through really strict periods of keto or fasting, like many, I don't sleep as much, but I never really feel tired. Like I don't feel fatigued. I don't feel run down. I don't feel like my recovery is garbage, but I simply wake up at like 3 a.m. just ready to go. And oftentimes I'll sit there frustrated trying to get back to sleep until really I just, if that happens, I just kind of get up, you know, and start the day. Well, come to find out, well, this could very well be what's going on is for whatever reason, which we really don't know, but it's promoting wakefulness. So having this fat adaptation is making it so you're essentially able to get by with less sleep. Now, what's happening with restorative slow wave sleep? What's happening with REM? All this, I mean, obviously we need to do more research on that, but I just find it intriguing because it's like, okay, well, that means that something is happening that's allowing us to get by with less sleep. And I start thinking of it from an evolutionary standpoint, hunter-gatherer type standpoint. That actually makes sense. If you're fasting, you're fat adapted, the more fat adapted you get, the more PPR alpha is activated, the more wakefulness you're going to have because you need to be awake hunting, trying to find food. I'm like, that just makes perfect logical sense. That is so interesting. I'm so glad you brought up PPAR alpha because I was going to talk to you about it because in your book, you talk about how it could arguably be called the key to fasting. And I wasn't even familiar with it before reading that. So basically its purpose with fasting, it's activated when we release stored fatty acids and then it's turning genes on and off and then correlates to, you know, a lot of the benefits of fasting. That's correct. Yeah. So it's not just stored lipids that are released. It can happen with, I want you like, if you kind of think of your cells marinating in fats, the more you marinate them in fats, the more they develop an affinity for them and start using them more. It does seem to happen more with stored lipids. So when you break down free fatty acids out of your adipose tissue or break down you know, triglycerides into free fatty acids out of your adipose tissue, that seems to activate PBR alpha more. And what PBR alpha is, is a, it's called a transcription factor. So it travels essentially to the nucleus of a cell, which is in this case, it's called a nuclear receptor protein. So it travels to the nucleus of a cell, attaches itself to the DNA and tells the DNA what to do. The way that I kind of explain this, now this is somewhat incorrect. So no one hold me to this as like a literal fact, but it's a great illustration. Envision your, your cells as being just out for themselves. Okay. Like cells, it's definitely the case for bacteria. Bacteria don't give two craps about like what happens to you. Like they are in it for themselves. Bacteria are very selfish, but cells, well, you could make the argument that they are in like harmony to try to make, you know, us survive. But at the same time, an individual cell, just think of it as just out for itself left to its own devices, it's going to just consume and use whatever's available. It's going to do whatever it wants. But the DNA sort of programs and corrals it and says, hey, no, you need to do this. So it's kind of like the parents in a way. So when PPR alpha is activated, it travels to DNA and it tells the DNA as a transcription factor. It says, hey, we got lots of fats floating around. You need to tell your kids, everyone out there, start utilizing fats because that's how you're going to survive. So then now it's like the government has come in and like casted this big message over the body. It says, Hey, newsflash, like red alert, everyone needs to use fats. So the cells kind of start shifting. They start changing their, you know, carnitine palmitoyl transferase or CPT1. They start changing fatty acid transporters, coenzyme Q10, proton gradients, all this stuff kind of changes in an effort to utilize fats better. And it's just kind of a cool analogy. And that's just what happens. And then when you start marinating with glucose again, whether that's good, bad, or ugly, kind of indifferent in some ways, the body will shift the other way. You know, there's then you start developing more glucose tolerance and you start soaking up glucose better. And you can vacillate back and forth, back and forth, 
And obviously what's great about fasting is the fact that you condition yourself to be fat adapted. But if you fast properly and with the proper utilization of carbohydrates, you can make yourself very metabolically flexible to use both. Just to comment on the selfish bit, it reminds me of, I had Dr. Jason Fung on the show for his book, The Cancer Code. It's a little bit ironic because I've been wanting to interview him for years because he's like the fasting legend, but we actually just talked about cancer. But he talks about how in cancer, it's like cells doing their inherent natural selfish nature where they have to go rogue because of their environmental situation. And so they start, you know, they just basically go rogue and they don't play nice. So it's a really nice analogy, actually. So question about that. So the fat that is signaling the PPAR alpha, can that happen from dietary fat as well? And what I mean by that is people will say you need to eat fat to teach your body to burn fat. Is that actually what is happening in that situation? To a certain degree, yes, but not nearly as much as stored lipids. That's where, you know, Dr. Ted Naiman, right? Yes, he's been on the show. I love him. Yeah, he's awesome. And this is, I don't want to like, th- this is where things can get difficult when I have a, like a channel as, as big as, I, as mine is. is like, you know, you, like if on one hand, I wish I could just talk very narrow all the time, but the channel would never grow. I have to like cast a net. And if people that have been on watching my channel forever and ever and ever know that that's what I do. But like Ted is so good at explaining how periodically taking away dietary fat is actually a very good thing. And I'm the same way, right? What's difficult is you've got the intermittent fasting community, you've got the keto community, and then you've got a pretty massive overlap of the two. I'm kind of in a gray area where like I'm keto, then I'll also keto and fast, then I'll also fast without keto. And I kind of do this whole hybrid of all of it. And when I do intermittent fast with carbohydrates, I'm usually very, very low fat. And I usually have the most fat loss during those periods of time. So it's not that I'm up. So that's where the keto community of mine gets really upset. They'll be like, I thought you were keto. Like, I I don't define myself as keto, but yes, I do periodic keto a lot. I also find that I put more muscle on with keto. Why? Because it's a lot easier for me to get appropriate calories in with keto. So it's like the caloric density is just so much more. Like I find that it's not the magic of the ketones or the magic of the carbs that are making me build muscle when I'm in ketosis or whatever. It's the fact that I'm simply eating more. And I don't want to go down like a simple thermodynamic rabbit hole because those that know me know that I think there's much more than just calories in, calories out, although I still believe in it. So I guess my point with that is when you restrict dietary fat, you give your body an opportunity to utilize your stored fat. And that is when the magic really does happen. So does that mean that everyone needs to go on a low-fat diet? No, that's not what I want people to take away from this. I feel like periodic surging of high-fat and low-fat is a really good strategy. Dietary fat can certainly influence PPAR, but not nearly to the degree that dietary fat, or excuse me, to the stored lipids that are being released can. And it just has to do with carbon chain length. It has to do with the type of fatty acid. It has to do with serum palmitate levels which can go pretty, pretty deep, much even beyond my pay grade. But the bottom line is, yeah, if you want to lose fat, like surge, I call it fat surging, go high fat and then go very low fat and do it for like short periods of time where you can go really aggressive with it and then pull back. And it's, I haven't seen a single person outside of people that have serious, serious metabolic dysfunction or pituitary issues that it has not worked for. Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. 
May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I'm loving this conversation so much. I can't even tell you how many times we get listener questions about people who've been doing fasting and keto for so long and it's just not working. And we suggest you know, you might want to try like a high carb, low fat approach paired with the fasting and see what happens. And so many people come back to me and say that it just changed, you know, it was like what they needed to like see change again. And again, I'm not saying that that is what they should be on for life either, but I think people get really like locked into this. It's got to be all low carb, high fat keto all the time. And I just think that doesn't always work for everybody all the time and that they're, and people get terrified of carbs, like terrified. So like for me personally, I always, I do a one meal a day situation eating in the evening and I always do either high carb, low fat or low carb, higher fat and just whichever one I want. But normally I'm on the high carb run. So I'm glad you mentioned about the short term or like, you know, going aggressive and going fast because that's something else I feel is a little bit controversial. You were talking about a study about this recently about how they were looking at people who either lost the weight fast or lost the weight over a longer amount of time and the effects on the eventual weight regain. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about that. I'd also read a study that I, it was a while ago though, so I'd have to find it, but it was looking at people who either lost a lot of weight really fast in the beginning and then did a slower approach or spread it out over a longer time. And the people who lost more in the beginning were actually more successful. So all of that to say, what are your thoughts on losing a lot of weight fast in the beginning? I actually think it can actually be beneficial for some people if that's controversial, but what are your thoughts? I don't know if you saw the, I did a little short video on it, but then I did a, like the full breakdown on my channel a couple days ago. It was like a 14 minute video looking at a lot of different bodies of research on this. And I think the, the very colloquial point that I made is like, Okay, if you lose 100 pounds in a year, or if you lose 100 pounds in five years, 
it actually is pretty negligible difference on the amount of weight regain. The only difference is that if you lose weight in a year, a hundred pounds in a year, okay, let me just kind of phrase this differently. Let's say I lose a hundred pounds in a year. Let's say you lose a hundred pounds in five years. If we both die in six years, who's going to have the better quality of life at the end of life? Like it's probably like, okay, losing the weight fast, as long as you didn't regain it, you're having four more years of positive feedback loops, amazing things happening as a result of being at a lower weight. The bottom line was that people that regain weight back, it might very well just be in the brain and it might very well be somewhat genetic. So the bottom line with that is it's the same risk of gaining weight back, whether you lose it fast or you lose it slow. And that is probably happening at the brain, which we don't know, also probably happening at a genetic level. So I say personally, you don't have to take this to the bank if you don't want to feed the stallion, starve the pony. If it's working, keep on going. If it's working, keep doing it. If you're aggressively cutting calories and it's working and you're actually dropping weight and you don't feel your metabolism crashing and very important point, you're not wasting a bunch of muscle by all means, keep doing it. And then, but with great power comes great responsibility as I always say, or Spider-Man says, but that's going to be the very big thing is like, okay, when you increase protein significantly, I can't remember the exact study, but I just talked about it in a video the other day, was I can explain the study. They had people go on a very, very low calorie diet for four weeks, and then they had them go on a three-month maintenance. Okay, one group ate 48 more grams of protein, 20% more protein than the other group. The group that had more protein only gained back 50% of the weight that the other group gained back, even when calories were matched. So essentially, like if you lose weight fast or you lose weight slow, the most important thing is after the weight is lost, you need to start replacing some calories with protein. That's just what, what it comes down to. But I don't want to like beat a dead horse and talk about like everyone online is talking about protein, protein, protein. It's just trendy to talk about protein. And it's, I get it, protein's important, but there's also a lot more to it than that. Like muscle stimulus is probably even more important than protein, like keeping the body moving, keeping. And what happens is people restrict calories. They go too far. They don't move their bodies. They don't resistance train. They lose muscle too. Then their metabolic rate crashes. So that's the biggest risk and it's the biggest caveat too. It's like if you take Bob that loses 100 pounds in a year and Jim that loses 100 pounds in two years, but you know Bob was lifting weights and Jim wasn't, Bob's probably going to have the better chance of maintaining his weight loss than Jim, even though Jim lost weight slower. So it's like you have to just go with what works. Plus, the positive metabolic impact on rapid weight loss is actually quite good. Like AMPK activation. AMPK is not a light switch. It's a dimmer switch. And what that means is that the benefits that you get downstream of caloric restriction are attenuated by a smaller caloric restriction or they're turned up by more caloric restriction. So you get more benefits. That's why fasting is so great, right? You, you're cranking that dimmer switch all the way to friggin' 12. You know, you're like, so you're getting all these benefits that wouldn't have happened if you had a fraction of a calorie, right? So it's the same kind of thing. There was a lot of interesting feedback on that because there's comments like, oh, you're going to give people eating disorders by telling them this. No, like no one is saying you need to go out and like starve yourself and binge. Like no one is saying that. The point is that, you know, if you are having success losing weight fast and someone tells you, hey, you need to pump the brakes, tell them to shove it, keep losing weight, you know, and then just be responsible once the weight is lost. That is the nuanced answer we need to this question. It's really a shame that, I mean, I think people see things so binary or so 
clickbaity and work. So people just think like crash diet and then everything's out the window. When really, like you said, for the given individual, it might be that a, a measured, sensible approach of fast, it's not crash dieting, it's fast dieting, you know, with ample protein might be the more effective thing in the long run for lots of reasons that you just discussed. So that is a great answer. Speaking of muscle, we get questions all the time about muscle and intermittent fasting. So do people need to be concerned about muscle loss on intermittent fasting? Do people need to be having more consistent muscle protein synthesis and you know taking in protein multiple times in order to adequately maintain or even gain muscle? I read things on both sides all the time. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm kind of with you in that. There's there's two different sides to the equation. There's the, okay, restrict protein for longevity. And then there's the, okay, make sure you get adequate protein for muscle because muscle is important for longevity. So it's like, where do you, where do you balance? And actually that's where I think you've got something good is with the OMAD, right? I'm not the biggest fan of OMAD personally. I like to do, I think you've probably seen my content on I'm like, if you're going to do OMAD, try to do like one and a half OMAD or two MAD, like where you're just like, have that, have that one little meal first and then give yourself a little break. But I think, and I, I say this with all due respect to people that OMAD, you're probably one of the people that does OMAD that makes a very conscientious effort to like get adequate food in and adequate nutrition in. That's my biggest concern with people that do OMAD is they just end up just, okay, well, I'm just going to eat one meal a day and I'm so hungry, I'm going to just eat whatever I want to eat. And then eventually you end up down this path. That being said, people that do it right, I think it's amazing. And then also, but it's, it's sometimes dangerous because people can take it too far. But I think that OMAD is so tremendous when it comes down to like a longevity piece because you're getting like massive mTOR suppression during a longer fast. You're getting great autophagy. You're getting great AMPK, you know, elevation. You're getting all these huge benefits. And then you're getting a nice rapid surge of anabolism during your eating period, which is fairly confined. Actually, like how long is your eating period, would you say? for you doing OMAD? So it probably ends up being around like four or five hours, sometimes a little bit longer. You are so correct. I eat pounds of like meat and seafood every night over like four or five hours. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's just, that's, that's just like the responsibility that has to come with it. It's like, if you're just going to, if you're going to eat like a bird, it's not going to work or it'll work for a while and then you're going to be disappointed. Okay. So yeah, so you've got, then you've got this high heightened anabolism for a short period of time where you're getting massive insulin sensitivity. So when you do take this protein in, you're getting a nice big, you know, insulinogenic response and mTOR activation in a confined period. And then you go right back to suppressing it you couldn't ask for anything better. It's like, Hey, you get what you need to maintain your muscle. Okay. Now let's jump over to the muscle question because I wanted to tackle the longevity piece because it needs to be addressed first. But the muscle piece, I had an interesting conversation with Dr. Tommy Wood on my channel, a little bit of a you know sensationalized title a while back. It was like how to like this burns or this generates three times more autophagy than fasting, but it's actually true. You got to do what you got to do. <laughs> Well, no, it's very true though. It's like, it's exercise, right? Exercise is the biggest inducer of autophagy, much more than fasting. However, different forms of autophagy for one. Another, however, that just means exercise during fasting is even better, right? So, because you're, you're not just having the same kinds of autophagy, you've got lipophagy, you've got macroautophagy, you've got microautophagy, you've got just, there's like six different kinds. So with that, when you, well, the other thing we talked about was Muscle stimulus is the most important thing. And we have to think about from a fasting perspective, if you were starving and sitting on the couch or not moving, 
your body's going to say, oh, well, you know, this person's starving and they're not utilizing their body. Let's go ahead and break down their muscle tissue because clearly they're not using it and it doesn't matter. Then on the other hand, you've got, you're fasted for 20 hours and you're lifting weights. Common notion would say, that's going to break down your muscle tissue. That's not how the body works. You're not like going in there and putting your arm in a meat grinder, literally breaking it down. You're doing, having a metabolic stimulus. I think people need to stop thinking of resistance training as mechanical and start thinking of it as metabolic. Like you are triggering an effect on the cells. You're triggering an effect on the tissue, not just damaging it via trauma. So what happens is when you're fasted and that happens, the body says, oh, this guy's hungry, but clearly these muscles are being used. So those must be necessary for survival. So let's make sure we do what we can to preserve those. And let's go ahead and use this fat instead. So, and then when the protein equation comes, you don't want to be having protein while you're fasting. Like, I don't think that that's, you know, it's one of the most, like protein is one of the most insulinogenic things that you could have, which would absolutely positively negate the effects of a fast. So you want to save that for later. Also roped in that equation, branched chain amino acids, EAAs to preserve muscle. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you could have them, but it's definitely going to negate the metabolic effects of a fast. You're still going to lose weight. Probably you might preserve a little more muscle, but you're not getting as much of the other benefits. You're definitely turning off autophagy. You're definitely turning off, you know, some of the cell senescence that's happening. You're definitely, you know, these sirtuin activations, all these positive things, you know, nicotinamide, adenine, dinucleotide, kind of just all that you're kind of limiting. So with that, I wouldn't really recommend it, but you know, EAAs post fast, I think those are great. I think that can definitely increase leucine availability and increase the mTOR spikes. So you're getting more out of it, but it's a, it's a, such a, such a crapshoot. Like it all depends on what your goal is, but I still think that regardless, whether you're, you know, an 85 year old grandma or you are a 20 year old trying to get jacked, fasting works as long as there is a muscle stimulus happening. When you say EAAs post-fast, do you mean in the context of food as well, or like breaking your fast with EAAs and then waiting a bit and then eating? EAAs in the absence of additional protein are fairly worthless in my opinion. I think what makes EAAs unique is that they increase the availability of protein. There's like a three to four X increase in the protein uptake when you take EAAs with a meal. So Having EAAs upon breaking a fast for someone that's doing OMAD or someone that's doing a short feeding window works tremendously well because you're essentially allowing yourself to, for lack of a better term, assimilate more protein from that meal. Mm, because you're not rate limited anymore? Exactly. Okay. Gotcha. You know my co-host, right? Cynthia Thurlow? Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny because she as well talks about what you were talking about with concerns about getting enough protein if people are doing a one meal a day situation. So we talk about this all the time. She calls me the unicorn and how, <laughs> you know, most people probably need to have like a, a longer eating window or, you know, a more of a two meal a day type situations. And so I, I really, I agree with that. And it's, it's also interesting because I am haunted. I'm haunted by the protein longevity question. And I actually, I've had Dr. Walter Longo on the show twice. Last time I interviewed him, I asked him literally what you just posited. Like I asked him if I'm doing what I'm doing, where I'm having a massive protein influx and then fasting every day, am I getting the best of both worlds with, you know, the intense mTOR simulation and then the fasted period, the AMPK and the autophagy? Because, you know, he's he's not a fan of high protein intake or especially not high animal protein. And he, he basically was just like, possibly, but we don't know that. So 
why risk it basically? I don't know. I'm going to keep on doing it. It makes sense to me. You know, yeah, it's tough, right? It's like some of these things, like I try to really look at things from as many angles as I possibly can because I spent a lot of years living in an echo chamber and I really try, I really try it. And I just don't see a lot of ways around how protein is good for you. So I, I try, but I do also understand that some of these, you know, guys like Volter, like, yeah, they firmly believe that that protein is a, uh, is an issue, but it's like, no one has lived long enough with that for us to really like see, like there's no one, no one's been like, Hey, like I'm 140 years old and I limited protein intake, you know? And even if you look at the blue zones, like blue zones are, are interesting, but there's just, I, I, first of all, I'll back up and say like, I love the blue zone, like concepts concept yeah yeah i don't like that there's sort of a a seemingly plant-based agenda behind it or actually okay i gotta back up again there's a seemingly plant-based agenda on the articulation and the interpretation of the blue zones i don't think the blue zones are actively saying we're not gonna eat meat you know like i think that's just like the way that their lifestyle is i did a video a while back where i took a look at every single blue zone and i took the positive attributes of each blue zone and tried to compile what I would think would be the perfect longevity diet. I'm like, okay, if blue zones are good, we need to stop looking at just the common denominators and we need to look at actually the outliers of each. <laughs> so let's look at, you know, Costa Rica, there's more fruit. There's actually tropical fruit. There's actually fairly high amount of carbohydrates. So those people are living long. Is it the carbohydrates or is it also the fact that it's a low stress lifestyle near the equator? That could be it too. Okay, well, let's look at Sardinia. Okay, let's look at Greece. Let's look at these things. And we look at you know, shellfish consumption and minerals. And we look at, so it kind of came with like, okay, there are some common denominators, but the common denominators are not necessarily the plant-based part. The common denominators seem to be walking around a lot, moving a lot, good relationships, <laughs> you know, like that's the common denominators. Then when you start looking at the diets, they're quite radically different between all of the groups. They're, you know, like Okinawans eat a lot of soy. They eat a lot of fermented soy. They eat a lot of purple sweet potatoes, like things that they don't think people in Japan would eat. Granted, it's become more industrialized in Okinawa now, and there's more rice and more refined stuff. So that's probably going to change. But for me, like, that's a lot like my diet. Like, I don't have a fermented soy. I will occasionally. Like, I'm not opposed to miso and stuff. Like, I'm not, I don't subscribe to the notion that, like, all soy is bad just because our glyphosate-ridden garbage in the United States is bad. You know what I mean? Like, like it's, and I also don't subscribe to the whole phytoestrogen thing entirely because there's, like, estrogens are exceptionally important. I had Dr. Kyle Gillette on my channel videos released later this week, but like we were talking about this, like we like phytoestrogens are different from xenoestrogens and phytoestrogens that are like overdone could be a problem, but in the right context, they could actually be beneficial and actually occupy estrogen receptors that stop more toxic estrogens that are being formed from other things in our body from ever binding, thereby potentially reducing male breast cancer risk and things like that. So uh, you actually have to, you know, look at the other end of a rope a little bit before you pull on it, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, sometimes, and you look at Japan, like they're consuming three to eight ounces of that stuff a day and like ridiculously low instances of male and female breast cancer, nice, even estrogen levels. Like how come it's not having that effect on them, right? So we have to look at well, what's happening in the United States. Well, okay, I can't point fingers. I don't know for certain, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably the fact that 99% of our soy is adulterated crap. Anyway, that's a different tangent. The point is 
Like I eat a lot of purple sweet potatoes. I eat a fair bit of fruit when I'm having carbs. I'm like, hmm, you know what's weird? It's like, and I also eat a crap load of shellfish. Like I eat, lo- love my scallops. I love things like that. Me too. I eat so many scallops. They're so expensive. It's so bad. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's an expensive habit. But, you know, I also like eat smoked oysters a lot. I eat, you know, I like I try to get, it's hard to get them. You know, a lot of them are farmed in China and you don't know what's in them, but you got to kind of be careful with that. But I guess my point is that when I analyzed my diet, I'm like, I, I kind of eat almost everything from a little bit of these blue zones. And I was doing so with a moderate protein intake without really trying hard to add a lot of protein. I was just like, well, let's just kind of eat how I would eat. And I still ended up at like 150-ish grams of protein per day. I'm 180 pounds. So it was right around where I would want to be. And it didn't feel like I was forcing protein. It was just happening naturally. And I didn't just count protein from meat. I counted protein from complete protein plant sources as well. So I don't think that I didn't need to make a concerted effort to restrict protein. And I was still eating a consuming a diet that was optimal for muscle integrity and probably optimal for longevity too. Hi friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours. 
And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, PS. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. First of all, I love all the tangents. The soy piece, it's interesting. Like you, I really, I really just try to be as open-minded as I can be with everything because it's really hard to see past your own biases. I've kind of changed my perspective on soy when I had Dr. Neil Bernard on the show. He came on for literally he he wanted to come on for his study he did that he had done on soy. And while I think he goes a little bit extreme in his perspective, it made me sit down and actually like look through the research and I was like, oh okay, maybe I have been inappropriately demonizing soy when really it's possibly other issues like ones you mentioned. And also I think what's important with the the Japanese population, I think a lot of it has to do with the equal, the isoflavon, like the metabolite of estrogen, but the production of it is from our gut bacteria. Some people just don't have the gut bacteria that create that. And I think that might have to do a lot with the health effects. So like the Japanese population has the bacteria that creates that so yeah, I'm, I'm really intrigued by all of that. Just comment really quickly on the blue zones. Well, first of all, if you step back, it's a little bit problematic from the beginning because I feel like those were a little bit arbitrarily picked, like the seven. Like there were a lot of other countries <laughs> that could have been picked as well, and we could have had a different conclusion. But what I find really interesting too is just very basic. So looking at the seven blue zones, six out of seven all include meat. So I don't know why the conclusion would be no meat. Like if you were just to be completely objective, you would think the conclusion would be like a little bit of meat or moderate meat. So it's just, I don't know. It's just really interesting how people interpret study. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the fasting, sensationalized fasting studies about fasting being bad for you. So I just really encourage people to dive deep like you were doing and really do their research. Question about autophagy. 
This is something I've wondered. And then a listener asked as well to us, and I got really excited to think somebody else was thinking about this. And so I tried to find studies on this and I could not find a single study on this. Do you know from the autophagy process, does it actually create a measurable amount of protein? So like if we're getting a lot of autophagy from fasting and exercise and all these things, can we like measure, can that equal a certain amount of grams of protein and then we would need less protein because of the autophagy? I tried to find studies on this and I couldn't find any. Measurable? I don't know, right? Like you would, in theory, it would be measured in your nitrogen content. Oh, that's what I should be Googling. That might help. Yeah, it would be, it would be your, your, your nitrogen. That's essentially like, you know, your blood urea nitrogen, but also just your, your just overall, like what you're secreting in your nitrogen balance. Cause that's kind of how you look. There's not, unfortunately not like over the counter, like nitrogen urine strips, which would be awesome. I just don't think it can really be done because that kind of tells you what's happening. That'd be nice. Yeah. It, oh, I wish, trust me. Like, it's so cool. It's like, cause they can test that stuff in clinic, but they can't test it. It must just have something to do with, you know, you probably actually need to test it. You can't just put it on a, you know, like a ketone strip. It would be so badass. But yeah, that's like the... It's the only way. And I know, I know Peter Atia talked about it a while back, not in a measurable sense. And then I found some data backing it up. I can't remember exactly what the study was. And I put it in a video or two or 10, but it was, uh, essentially like if you break down, if you have autophagy occurring from XYZ cell, it could actually provide amino acids into the labral pool to help you with, you know, bicep formation like that's totally random and hypothetical but point is is that the amino acids like things that are deaminated and broken down like that can help you with protein synthesis so it's like if you're breaking down via autophagy and then you're working out like yes you're upregulating autophagy but you're also potentially using that protein that is broken down from other components to rebuild other components so it's like I could break down proteins from my calf to support my bicep again, totally hypothetical, but just to illustrate a point. And then, but what really does matter, and I know Peter Atia mentioned this too, and it was my conclusion is that what really does matter is that's all just borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. And it doesn't really matter. It does matter in the moment, but what matters is that afterwards you're replenishing to bring yourself up the balance because otherwise you will still be in, you know, muscle protein imbalance and a deficit there. And that is going to be detrimental to your muscle. But I would imagine that it could probably be measured via nitrogen. Like if you're, but you're probably not forming complete proteins just out of the blue. You know, you're just, you're breaking down whatever you need to break down into peptide chains and aminos and, and then your body's just going to do what it needs to do from there. So I don't think it's ever like forming into something that would show up as nitrogen, but if it did, that's probably where it would be. I feel like you're reading my mind. I was, li- I was literally going to ask you because Peter Atia talks. I've heard him say too that he doesn't think the amount of autophagy you get from fasting is like anything substantial. So that's haunted me a little bit. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, it's hard to tell. You know, I feel like Peter Atia got so called out on so much stuff a couple of years ago that he like definitely 180'd on a lot of things. But I also respect when people 180 because I, I sometimes they just have to break themselves out of the echo chamber. So you, you never know, right? You never know. Like to, because he used to be all about it, but 
then yeah, same with the fasting in general. Yeah, and same with keto in general. But you know, it's it's you know thing, things change, people change, and yeah, who knows? <laughs> That's one of the problems with this whole world. And when you do have a fan base and everything, is you can't win because if you do change your mind, then oh, you were wrong. You changed your mind. But if you don't change your mind, then you're That's all it. <laughs> Yeah. So like, you just can't win. That's why I preface everything with like, I don't know. I reserve the right to be wrong. I might change my mind on this. So yeah. So just a few other quick things that you touched on in your book that I, I really liked that you provided a different, more nuanced perspective on. One was men versus women, fat burning and fasting. This is the, I don't even like using the word conclusion because that makes it sound like it's settled, but this is what I had found as well in researching men and women and fat burning was that women tend to look like they're, they seem to be better fat burners and, you know, better with exercise and burning fat and all of that. But then, but some people will say the complete opposite, you know, that women just that, you know, that fat burning is that men do it better. So what are your thoughts on men versus women and fat burning and fasting? Yeah, I was trying to pull up the study if I could find it, but essentially women seem to do better utilizing fats. Basically the action of adrenaline and hormone sensitive lipase seem to utilize fat better through that simple pathway, which is really like one of the only pathways that seems to be, they, they seem to do marginally better than men, which would imply that if adrenaline is higher and the percentage of fat burned in that situation is better, then yeah, women would actually do better with fasting and do better with high intensity work and do better with things like keto where there is a higher catecholamine output. So if you, yeah, I'm going to see if I can find it really quick because it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I've definitely read like that one or one really similar to it. Yeah. Journal of Applied Physiology. Adrenaline burns more fat in women than men since women have a higher fat percentage of men of the same weight, not only in their bodies, but also within their muscles. It would also make sense as the primary energy source. So they're more sensitive to the lipolytic action of epinephrine compared with men while maintaining similar glucoregulatory effects. So women burn more fat, less carbohydrates, and less protein than men at the same exercise intensity. It's really interesting because that's what I've seen, and I've seen it in multiple studies. But then I'll just see like very simple sentences like that just say, you know, women are not as adapted to burning fat as men. And do you think that's because, and if so, why? It seems like when it comes to, quote, problems with keto and fasting, women seem to have more, quote, problems. Like it becomes too stressful or like, what do you think is the nuance there? I think this is probably just the fact that women have a lot of complicated things going on. Like it's just, you know, it's it's probably not apples to apples all the time. It's definitely not apples to apples, but it's not apples to apples each and every day. You know, men have relatively homeostatic sex hormones and well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, they fluctuate a lot too, but nothing like a ladies would. So there's a lot of complicated things and there's a lot of rebound and there's a lot of homeostatic like sort of feedback loops. And that's probably what makes it more complicated is who knows, perhaps like one day women would burn fat more and the next day they wouldn't. But I also think that when you look at like a large cohort of women, like just the stress of like child rearing and all that comes with that, like who knows, like there could be a heightened cortisol response. It also could be, this is purely speculative, but maybe there's more of an evolutionary role where they utilize fat better than men because they are probably more stressed out than men. Like you actually think about, again, I'm not an anthropologist. It would be really fun to like interview some anthropologists and like bring them into our world because I feel like that's what needs to be done. 
because there's a lot of just misinformation about like people like total BS about this is how our ancestors age. I'm like, is it really? Do you really know? Like, what's that? Guy? I don't know if you've seen that show on Netflix, like that anthropology show with that guy. He's been on Rogan before. I can't remember his name. I think I just listened to his interview on Rogan. He's awesome. And he gave me so much hope because I'm not a scientist, right? People call me a pseudoscientist. And he's like, and I'm like, I'm not even pretending to be a scientist. Like, I don't even want to be a scientist. I'm just good at articulating this stuff. And he's like, I'm no more a pseudoscientist. I am no more a pseudoscientist then a dolphin is a pseudo fish. And I was like, I love that. It's like, it's perfect because he's like, I'm not trying to be a scientist. Just like a dolphin's not trying to be a fish. He just is what it freaking is. And like, I, here I am look and like, it's the same with me. But the reason that I mentioned that is like, maybe women have the more stressful role. Think about it. Like men kind of like, <laughs> it seems as though they would go out and hunt and then they'd probably just come back and sit on their asses all day. And then they'd go like, they and like, most of the research we have seen with that, and Dr. Tommy Wood had talked about this, is that they're relatively sedentary like beings. And an athletic individual today, an athlete today is estimated to be six times more active than like the most active hunter-gatherer. So it's like we think like, I want to be a caveman. Do you really? Like, because the cavemans weren't probably weren't jacked. And the cavemen probably were like skinny fat and probably just like hunted for short bursts and then sat around and gathered nuts most of the time. So like, is that what you want to do? Whereas the women probably had the tough job of actually like wrangling children and like actually had chronic stress, whereas the men might have like acute stress and then they go sit on their ass. So like, that's probably what it was. But again, I'm not an anthropologist and that would just make sense. Like, okay, well maybe women were designed to be a little bit more stressed out and utilize fuel accordingly. Whereas men were not as good at utilizing fat because they were less active. <laughs> I've got to do an interview now with an anthropologist for sure. That's amazing. I'm glad you mentioned cortisol though. That was my other thing that I wanted to touch on really quickly, which was people often say that we release cortisol and then we don't burn fat. So what are your thoughts on that? Because you, you talk in the book about the nuance of cortisol and the fed versus the, the fasted state. Yeah. So, I mean, cortisol is interesting because cortisol is, you know, actually our friend in many ways, you know, it's just, the problem is that with cortisol, you want it to be elevated when there's not insulin present, right? So it's when you have insulin present and cortisol, that's when you start running into these problems. So there's like this, I don't know, unfortunately, this problem with demonizing cortisol all the time when it's really only a problem when it's present with insulin. So it's like, let cortisol do its job while you're fasting. Sure, it's anti Sure, it's catabolic. Sure, it's not the best. But at the same time, it's also what drives fat loss. So very, very difficult to figure out there. So unfortunately, I don't really have a solid, solid answer for you on that. Like, is it good? Is it bad? Well, it's kind of similar to, I think, the insulin-glucagon relationship because I think a lot of people have high insulin and high glucagon at the same time, which creates problems. And I'm just thinking about it because I get a, I've get been getting so many questions about semaglutide recently. And it does increase insulin. So I get questions about it's increasing insulin. How is that helpful? But it's also decreasing glucagon at the same time, which I think is a important, you know, piece of the puzzle. So I think it's just people take very not nuanced perspectives of these hormones. Yes, I totally agree. Yeah, semaglutide is such an interesting one. That was where I had Dr. Gillette, like he's a real big expert in semaglutide and yeah, it's just so wild. Like everyone just kind of wants to hop on the stuff. And I'm like, don't be so quick to do that. Like there's always like 
if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Like it's being used somewhat off label in some ways because it's really much more for glucose management. But some of the side effects are just like makes you not that hungry and can make you nauseous and all this and that. So it's, uh, but it's, it's just, it's intriguing stuff. And the mechanism of action is quite interesting, but it can stop gluconeogenesis. It can stop, which might not be good for people that are fasting because then you're stopping down the formation of the glucose that can, is keeping you alive when you fast and also supporting muscle tissue and all this. But yeah, with, with, you know, in regards to cortisol and like, I don't know the mechanism with semaglutide and cortisol and how that all works, but we just have to remember that the one thing you don't want to do is have a bunch of stress and high cortisol right when you break your fast, when you're going to have a high spike in insulin. Like those two things in tandem are what the data clearly shows that you run a high risk of visceral fat accumulation. Like that's so with that, I always say, okay, like, you know, I'm not going to break my fast if I'm frantic. I'd rather just like, you know, if I'm out on the road and like, it's like, oh my gosh, it's three o'clock. It's time to break my fast. Ah, it's three o'clock. It's time to break my fast. Like, oh my gosh, I got to str- find something. I gotta find, you know what? Just let the fast go another hour and wait until I'm not frantic and I'm calm and I'm not dealing with something crazy. It's just a better solution. And it may seem so negligible. You're like, oh, you got all the people on the, probably the calories in calories out community that are going to have a fit and be like, oh, come on. It's so negligible. It doesn't matter. No, it's actually pretty profound. Like if you're crazy stressed out, okay. Like let's just say you're fasting and you're about to break your fast. And then you get a phone call that says like, you know, your dog died or something. Like you're not going to like, you're not going to be happy. You're going to be stressed out. Like you should not break your fast then and there. You should probably just like either let it ride a little bit until you simmer down. And if you do run into a situation where you have to eat when you're stressed, definitely don't eat things that are going to spike your insulin heavily. Keep your protein moderate, keep your fats moderately high, keep your carbs very low. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved a natural full-spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today, we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside, and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full-spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths, and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought... It was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible 
and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time? That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. I could not agree more. I just have no interest. I have to have my really intense wind down routine every night when I'm eating and everything. And I just have no interest in eating if I'm, you know, not in that state. And it's nice to know that it's not just all in your head, that there's actually, you know, hormonal reasons behind that. So that's amazing. If you could conduct one study, like, and you had unlimited resources, what would you like to test? Like a trial, clinical trial? Really good question. I would love to, well, I'd love to test something in healthy cohorts. Like, so, because I think the problem we face right now is like, it's very hard to find a healthy cohort to see like, okay, like, so I'd really like to see the effects of fasting on like true healthy people and athletes as far as like muscle goes. So I don't have anything in particular with that, but that's the one thing that's been missing is really finding healthy cohorts. Like you can find like, like six resistance trained males, you know, like that's not like going to help you. Like we need to find like, you know, two or 300 metabolically healthy people, people that are universally healthy with endurance and anaerobic and really start pulling some data there because you know who like the biggest people that combat us in the fasting community are? It's generally the fitness community. It's the loud fitness community that is just like, they are training so hard that they're, they're out training their diet, which is doable for a period of time, but you can only get your, you can only do that for so long. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you can only, you can only out train your bad diet for so long in your life before you either get old or you just can't train that hard anymore. (laughs) And so I'm not denying that it's doable, but then you get this like 
okay, well, what about the people that are metabolically healthy that are still trying to kind of find this balance? So it would be very interesting to see, you know, sort of the effects on muscle protein synthesis in healthy people. Like, can it actually make a bigger impact? Can it, you know, more so than people that are unhealthy? Because people can stimulate a lot of muscle growth if they're unhealthy because it's sort of those newbie gains. But I just, more data in general with already healthy people. It would just be so exciting if you could, you know, conduct these trials. Something I would love to do, it would be a placebo effect type thing where people wouldn't know that it was testing fasting, but the prescription would be, you know, you have to take this pill every day. And the way the instructions would be, it would force people into a fasting window because it'd be like, you know, like you can't take within this amount of time of eating. So it would force people into a fasting window. And then we'd really be testing fasting with people not realizing they're fasting. That's a good idea. That's a really good point. Yeah. So, yes. But in any case, this has been absolutely so amazing. I, I really cannot thank you enough for all of the work that you're doing. Like I said in the beginning, and I think now, especially listeners, after hearing this episode, you're just so incredible. Like, you know your stuff. You dive deep into the science. You're not biased. And you're making it all approachable and nuanced and getting the information out there. So I cannot thank you enough. And the last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? I am grateful for my family, 100%. Grateful for being able to be home so much with my kids and watch them grow, especially through these super crucial years. You know, they're three and five. And, you know, I know that not every parent gets the opportunity to be home so much with their kids. And I'm just grateful for for that. And I'm also grateful for my mistakes that led me to where I am today to be able to have that opportunity. I'm grateful for the bad decisions that I made that ultimately led to better outcomes in my life. And I'm grateful for the sun. I don't think we say that enough. I love that. One last random question to your kids. Are they pretty open to everything that you do? Do you anticipate having like challenges with the whole diet culture world with them? You know, try to teach our kids that you just, I I don't, they don't know me as eating a specific way at all. Like they, they know that sometimes dad doesn't eat dinner. They know that some, but I try to, and I said this on the Lewis Howes podcast too. It's like, I just say, daddy's not hungry. And I teach them to listen to their body. And sometimes it backfires because they'll just decide they're not hungry because daddy said he's not hungry and they just want to go play with their toys. And then they get you know, kids do need to eat a little bit more than we do. (laughs) And it's like, then they get hangry and stuff like that. But the point is like, I'm trying to instill upon them that you just need to listen to your body and food is fuel. And I really try to teach that mantra because I can't stop them from eating certain things, especially once they get a little bit older, they're going to be hanging out with other kids that things are going to happen. It's just going to be life. But what they do need to understand is that sort of transactional effect of food in their body. When I eat this, I feel X. So I try to tell, ask them how they feel after they eat something. You know, and if they have a little bit of sugar or something like that, I ask them how I feel. And usually they say, I feel good because they're energized, you know? And I'm like, Hey, that's cool. You know what's happening right now? Like you have energy being created in your body and you need to use it because you need to listen to your body. So on some one hand, like, not like I give my kids a bunch of sugar, but I also let them live life a little bit. So it's like, Hey, if you're going to have sugar, recognize how it makes you feel. It gave you all this energy, albeit good energy, bad energy, whatever. Okay, go and use it. Go run outside. Go, go, go. And I want to create that Pavlovian sort of stimulus response where they eat something that makes them feel bad. They don't want it. They eat something that gives them energy. They know to use it. 
And so it's working. It's like they're, they're understanding this intuitive relationship with food. And that's the best groundwork I think you can lay. Awesome. That is so helpful. I think people really, really struggle with that. So thank you so, so much. This has been amazing. We'll put links to all of your content in the show notes. I look forward to everything else that you're doing in the future. You're really doing amazing things. So thank you. You bet. Thanks for having me. Bye, Thomas. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.